Good evening, listeners. It is the 1st of October, 2017, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about the research and stuff that's happening at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out more of our, more about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University, New Scale Power, or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Dylan Addison. Hey, guys. Hey, Dylan. Thank you for coming on air. Uh, let's get some, th- some, uh, some housekeeping over with. What, uh, pr- who was your major professor, and what degree did you get? My professor was Jamie Kruzik, and I got a Master's of Science in Material Science. And you'll notice, listeners, this is in past tense because congratulations, Dylan, you recently graduated. So uh, you have a, a much different perspective than a lot of the guests that we, that we usually have on the show. It's been a long and winding road. Yes, I just graduated back in June. Nice. So this is a perfect time to ask you, you know, how would you describe your research that you have now finished and polished off and put on a book on the shelf? Next level, groundbreaking. <laughs> Absolutely the most insightful thing I've ever done. I would say that uh, the, uh, the study of fracture mechanics, which I engaged in with Dr. Kruzik, uh, fantastic field to be in because things break all the time and we wish we knew why they broke. And so we got to look into that and we got to look into that uh, for a particular material. I was looking at alloy 617, which is a nickel-based superalloy that is slated for use in next-generation nuclear power plants. And what we did was we put it in an Instron test apparatus and looped an induction coil around it and heated it up to 800 degrees Celsius and then ripped it apart and saw how it broke. (laughs) And so it's kind of an in-situ experiment, as they say, uh, in place and uh, and at temperature. wasn't necessarily the environment that the material is going to be in. That's a whole other topic, which people can... Refer to my thesis too. Uh, it's a quite quite a uh, <laughs> quite a document, if I might say so myself. <laughs> so yeah, um, my field. My what else is there to say? Lead me, please. Well, I'm wondering. Uh, so now you're doing something similar at your new job. It's true. A- and where is that? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And my and anything I say are not the opinions of New Scale Power LLC. Um, <laughs> uh, but that is where I work, and I was very fortunate to get out of school with a master's of of science in mechanical, or bachelor's in mechanical engineering, then a master's of science in material science, and uh, and go right to work as a subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup of people that get to do exactly what they were studying. I don't know how many people are in that position, but I'm one of them. That uh, New Scale Power hired me to to look at fracture mechanics. I mean, that's ostensibly one of the things they hired me to do. You know, I may end up doing any number of things there to help qualify to the design that they've got going there. Um, it's very, very exciting. And you guys have caught me at a, um, a kind of a pivotal point in my life here where I'm two months into a, a really a, two months into my adult life. I've been going to school my entire 
life. <laughs> and here I am now just arrived uh, with a, what they call a real job. Yeah, and, uh, you just finished 20-something grade. Exactly. And it's yeah. interesting because as you go further and further in your education, you realize that you narrowly focus down on what you know really well. So then you have a somewhat limited amount of skills that you can use extraordinarily well. But like you were saying, you're extremely lucky that that extremely narrow band of skill set, new scale power said, yeah, we want that. Yeah. We could use you. And I believe I was uh, I was in an applicant pool of like three or maybe four people for this position and so and that's the way that that goes at the at the fringe of whatever it is that you're specialized special yeah i can't even talk you guys got me nervous on the radio this is great <laughs> i can hear myself talk in my ears um at the fringe of whatever you're specializing in um there's going to be a limited pool of applicants and yeah you just got to distinguish yourself and and now here i am trying to distinguish myself further as somebody that uh, is going to make nuclear power work so that's that's what we're doing there at new scale and it's it's mighty fun and specifically, you're making it not break. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this specialty of uh, knowing something, a thing or two about a thing or two about fracture mechanics um, helped me distinguish myself in my interview, you know, for New Scale. You know, I have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, and there's a wide swath of things to do for New Scale that they will have me do over the course of my employment there, I'm sure. So... So before we get into the depths, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of hear all the range of things that you can do and what does fracture mechanics actually encompass? Because, you know, we're, you're talking about a super alloy that we'll definitely get into, especially why you need to test it at such high temperatures. But, you know, the field of fracture mechanics, you know, why do you find that interesting and what else can you do with that type of uh, knowledge? What else can you do? Well, let me just dive into what I did with my research a little bit more, which we were looking at the phenomena of creep, which is time-dependent deformation of materials at high temperatures. So if you get something that's 60 or 70% of its melting temperature, it's up there 800 or 900 degrees. That's where alloy 617 is. Oh, I forget the right numbers, but, you know, it's 1,300 degrees, it melts, and so you get it at 800 degrees, and it's in the creep regime. And that means that if you just put stress on it, if you pull on it, like on a bar of 617, it'll slowly start to just deform and the bar will get longer and longer and longer. And we're looking at the interplay at those high temperatures between creep and fatigue because one of the things about the new energy landscape that we're going to face is that renewables aren't on all the time. And there's this thing called load following where when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing... And perhaps if the battery packs that we that we hook up to those things aren't supplying a base load all the time, then nuclear plants, future nuclear plants, will have to ramp up and down their energy production, and that creates a fatigue cycle. You have to you heat the thing up, and then you cool the thing down. You heat the thing up, and it creates these stresses that are cyclical. And so we were looking at in my research the interplay between creep deformation and fatigue uh, crack growth. And, and how that affects crack propagation and, uh, with a number of parameters. And that's, it's, a, it's a deep story, and it's a fun story. So that's, uh, it, is that add enough color? Um, yeah, where can you go with that? You gotta, the fraction mechanics is a pretty new field. It's, like, it's been around for maybe 150 years, probably less than that. I think most of the innovation that happened was the 20th century when we started making a bunch of warships and warplanes and we wanted to prevent stuff from cracking and breaking. Um, 
and I think a movie disc came out. I think it had Channing Tatum in it or something. It was like, you guys see this? Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? I don't think so. <laughs> it a, it somebody, uh, it was about these, these ships that cracked and broke, and it was a big welding failure for the United States. So they just didn't understand um, – Fracture mechanics. Fracture mechanics. They didn't. So we made a movie about it, you know, or whoever. <laughs> and we made it because it was a big learning lesson. Um, so it's a fairly new field, and there's much to learn, just like there's much to learn in nuclear still. And so for our listeners who are not as familiar with nuclear power in general, can you give us a, a definition of your definition for a. Um, a novice or just yeah, a... Yeah, let's make it formulaic. Someone, someone outside of here who's just walking to the library. How would you describe <laughs> so nuclear... If, if I was standing there with a leaflet and I had to hand them something, it would be a little postcard-sized piece of paper with one thing written on it that is E equals MC squared. <laughs> and if they, got, if they got that concept, then they would get it all because uh, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, what have you, he, uh, he cracked the code, right? Uh, so the speed of light is the proportionality constant, you know, speed of light squared, between matter and energy. And that's pretty deep, and we get to unlock that, that vast amount of energy with nuclear power apparatus. Um, so it can be good, where we use the energy for things like talking on the radio, or it can be bad, where we use the energy for blowing stuff up. But in, independent of you know what we use it for, there's no debate that we're gonna need more energy in our future. And the real question is, you know, we're not gonna be able to use coal in perpetuity. So what's gonna fill that gap of renewable energy? Well, I mean, it's you're talking to a person that's very biased, so I'm gonna say <laughs> nuclear, and uh, and that's my inherent bias. And you know, wind and solar and geothermal, maybe I don't know, hydro, they have parts to play, and yet. Uh, Right now, two-thirds of our carbon-free electricity comes from uh, nuclear power. And on and top of that, the power plants that we currently have, they're, gonna, they're not going to last much longer. Precisely. There's a retirement cliff, they call it, um, coming in the 2030s. There, there might be, you know, these plants that are out there are like Gen 2 plants, Gen 3 plants. Um, They've been around for a long time, and they've all, some of them have already been recommissioned for another 20 years. And that might happen again. We might say, oh, we can, okay, we can let this one run another 20 years, even after 2030. The, the likelihood, though, is that most of our nuclear power plants are going to begin to go offline in the 2030s. And that's a lot of energy that we're going to have to replace. It's a fifth of the, the nation's United States Electricity production comes from these hundred-some nuclear plants that we have around the country. And like you said before, the field of fracture mechanics is relatively new. So I imagine when they built these power plants, they weren't nearly as well-versed as we probably are now, and especially with what you're doing, because you're trying to make sure things don't break, literally. Literally. Literally trying to make sure <laughs> things don't break, and you're finding you know, the, the, optimum, the optimum processes to make sure that doesn't happen. So I imagine if anything new gets built, it's probably going to be of much better quality in the long run than what currently is there. Oh, it's interesting because it's, you know, there's a couple ways to make sure things don't break. You know, one is to like over, just over design and to make everything th really thick and really robust. 
And yet that that method encounters all sorts of economic constraints because if you just have more material, more expensive material, more next generation expensive material, you know, <laughs> super alloys or whatever, it costs a lot of money to get out of the ground into the form factor you're talking about. So if you're going to make everything like four times as big, then that's not necessarily a solution that's going to work in the market. The other way to design things so that they don't break is just to use creative, innovative thinking. And uh, that's what attracts me to my current employer, New Scale Power, is that their their design is so creative um, that uh, everything else pales in comparison right now. At least that's my biased, uh, opinionated <laughs> perspective. And also these, so these are the next generation then. So you're saying the second generation or the older generation nuclear power plants are going to be disappearing here, but there there is hope that we will have a lot of energy coming from these newer generation uh, nuclear power plants. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Just uh, what the benefits are of these new? Yeah, and, and let's let's draw the distinction. Uh, new scale power is, is sort of marketing their design as a generation three plus reactor, three plus because it's using light water reactor, pressurized water reactor technology that we've been. Uh, that we've been perfecting, you could say, over the course of you know, the last 60 years and, uh, and putting it into a different form factor. And uh, they're going to go out on the open market with this technology that's really already been proven. And so they're calling it Generation 3 Plus. The, um, or I should say I'm calling it right now. Again, my opinions. My opinions. <laughs> I, can, I don't even know what I could say. So, so pardon me for just constantly having to backtrack and say this is all my opinion. In any case, safe than um, sorry. It better to be safe than sorry, because it's the first job that I got. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, so good. Um, so generation three plus, that's one thing. Um, the alloy 617, the nickel-based super alloy in my research, this was for a generation four reactor. And uh, the one that the United States government a- approved for more funding, more research in 2005 and is in the government uh, decree almost, I guess you would say, letter from Congress or whatever it's called. Uh, it's the high-temperature gas-cooled reactor where we're using helium as the heat transfer fluid, and it is um, it operates at eight or nine hundred degrees Celsius, whereas current reactor technology, including new scales, is going to be much much cooler. Um, and can you put my mind at ease? That sounds pretty darn hot. Yeah, yeah, and yet it's <laughs> even safer than anything that came before it. The, and the reasons are well. It'll be safer once Alloy 617 is code case qualified. Ah, so, so it comes down to you, Dylan. It's, oh, so the whole weight of the world is resting on my shoulders, guys. <laughs> you don't even know. I was trying to get this paper out that might turn my thesis into a paper. That's, that must be a struggle for many um, recent <laughs> graduate students. I don't know. I'm certainly struggling with it. Anyway, um, yeah, it's, it is very hot. And the case is that a lot of these new designs, they have – Again, smarter designs. Not it's not like brute force, make everything thicker or whatever. It's it's design something that's inherently going to be safer. And they have passive safety protocols in place. Can you describe some of those? I can do my damnedest, darndest, darndest. I can say that um, passive uh, safety features for New Scale. Uh, they they call it the triple crown. If you go to newscalepower.com, you will see that. Um, there's no operator action necessary. There's no AC or DC power, and there's no additional water. These are the three triple crown of passive safety. So it's walk away safe, quote, unquote. And um, 
and you to to understand it, you kind of need a visual. But we can just picture a tall cylinder, and the whole thing's powered by natural convection, where the the fissile material is at the bottom, and it's heating up the fluid. In this case, water, and the water rises as it gets hot, and then when it gets to the top, we're taking the heat away. And the water gets colder, and it drops, and it's this natural convection loop that involves no pumps. So you don't need any operators. You don't need any power. You don't need anything. It's just it's it's all the magic of the form factor. So hopefully this, that paints a picture. Yeah. So this is where the overengineering is one method, or you know, using the beauty of physics is another. Precisely. And so you've got these next generation nuclear or nuclear power apparatuses. Mm. apparatuses <laughs> and so we have more energy and it's safer but nuclear to me still co- sounds kind of like a scary word and it might sound scary to the rest of the public what what might you say to um, people that are just learning about nuclear power and all the benefits that we can get from it um, but are still kind of on the fence just because of the reputation yeah well, the, the public relations campaign by the modern environmental movement to say not in my backyard as this is a this is 40 50 years old now that people still don't want it in their backyard and for some good reasons cuz uh, radioactive contamination can be a problem it can be a problem and yet uh, now we have these beautiful things called dry casks have you heard of them they're giant steel containers within a giant concrete container this is where the brute force methodology comes into play cuz we don't have we don't have better solutions like putting it in a mountain for instance yucca mountain fell through nobody could agree on where to put nuclear waste so yucca mountain just didn't happen and maybe it will never happen it's still a good idea i feel the stuff came from the ground we could put it back in the ground <laughs> um, and yet um, there's a there's a couple points here right that, that if people are afraid of nuclear power it's it's really one of two things it's the association with weapons or it's the association with radiation that scary word of radiation nuclear waste is radioactive and it's going to get me if it's in my backyard and um you know in oregon and in washington um in the pacific northwest radon is way bigger source of radiation than any than than anybody would ever experience from having a nuclear power plant in their backyard I think I've, I've read somewhere with the fence post made idea that if you fly across the United States, you get more radiation exposure than what would be allowed than if you were at the edge of the fence post of a nuclear power plant. Totally. No, I, I don't know that exact that stat, but it, it sounds true. I mean, cosmic radiation, it, they've done studies on airline pilots and th- their health gets screwed up because they're at altitude and they have less protection from all these things that are flying through the galaxy just hitting us all the time. So, you know, radiation is a natural thing. So it's one of it, – it's – I want to mention two things. One, on the radioactivity of nuclear waste front, we have really good ideas for that, like dry cask storage and a creative, innovative way for uh, for not just storing dry casks in uh, the power plant fields like they are now. There's about 100 power plants uh, in the United States, and the way we store the waste, it's just sitting there in the fields in dry casks, or if it's waiting to go into dry casks, it's in a pool. Um, well, once we get it into a dry cask, which again is a big steel container wrapped in a big concrete container, we could do something even more awesome with it, which is, again, uh, drawing from the beauty of physics. There was this thing, uh, maybe in the 70s or 80s, they came up with this thing called the solar tower. And it was this giant platform that was transparent, so it, uh, it would capture solar radiation, 
And so the sun would shine its rays through it and heat up the air underneath this, I guess, 10-foot-high platform or something like that. And as the air gets hotter, it has nowhere to go but up through the center, through the solar tower. And the reason why that never took off is because with just solar energy, the tower would have to be just abhorrently large. It would have to be <laughs> way too, way too tall. And now, um, I just met some people a couple months ago uh, by, by the name of LumosIndustries.com. LumosIndustries.com. <laughs> go check it out. Um, that they've, they've co-opted this concept of the solar tower and the concept of how we store nuclear waste with dry casks. And they're saying that we can put all the dry casks in a parking lot. And because they're still hot, that's why we're afraid of them, right, is they're radioactive. They're hot. They're actually producing heat. Um, coupled with solar radiation from the sun, uh, they can heat up the air under that solar platform, and you only have to build it as high as like the Sears Tower or, or whatever they call the Sears Tower now. Something far uh, more reasonable. Far more reasonable, and they're, they're going to build a whole business out of this, Lumos Industries is. Turning trash into money. Yeah, and closing the fuel cycle is another option that Bill Gates is working on with his breeder reactors, and that's another thing. Um, but let's say that we've conquered that issue in somebody's mind and they're no longer afraid of nuclear waste. What about nuclear weaponry? What do we do about the Kim Jong-uns of the world trying to <laughs> blow people up, trying to blow Guam up? What's the deal? Um, <laughs> what do we do about that? Well, my opinion, my argument, would be that the United States has a responsibility at this point to get back in the nuclear game and, and play a bigger role, a leadership role, in the nuclear supply chain so that uranium and then, then its um, byproducts of plutonium – weapons-grade stuff, can't get into the wrong hands. And we only have that role, that seat at the non-proliferation table if we play a leadership role in safe nuclear energy. And the energy, uh, you, you mentioned it before, what's it called? The, the Energy Information Administration um, came out with this stat that maybe people uh, will get when I say it and maybe they won't. But by 2040, nuclear electricity production is going to double this is our government saying this. It's going to double. And most of those gains right now, like when they did the assessment a couple of years ago, most of those gains are going to come from China. China is taking the lead on nuclear power. And we have the opportunity to step up and, and take the lead ourselves. But, uh, you know, that's, that's where we stand. So by, by developing plants ourselves, you know, then we kind of have a much heavier hand in controlling the ins and outs, the, the processes, you know, the waste products or the inputs. So the more we can control that from a commercial perspective, then we can then, in a way, monopolize the entire life cycle of this, you know, potentially dangerous but ultimately highly usable and functional uh, nuclear material. So the more we step up now, the better it is for the long run. 100%. Yeah. We can be leaders for the good. For the good, a global <laughs> force for good, as the Navy commercials would have you think. Yeah, absolutely. So before yeah. you became a global force for good, Dylan, uh, how did you become interested in mechanical engineering in the first place? Oh, that's a, a fantastic segue to uh, my life story, which is to say <laughs> that I was working in a kitchen. Everybody's got to serve their, their time. Um, you know, I served my time in the back of the house. Some people actually serve when they serve their time. Uh, I was working in a kitchen for a couple of years, 
and like dishwashing, um, dish, dishwashing, and then I became a line cook at this place in Ashland, Oregon, called Thai Pepper, making Thai food, Americanized Thai food. It's great stuff. A bunch of white guys in the back making Thai food. <laughs> anyway, um, we uh, had a great time there, and yet I could see after a couple of years of doing that, it's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I had met somebody who, um, my significant other at the time, we, were, we had started babysitting for some people's kids, and I made friends with the dad. And he was a retired mechanical engineer who had started a machine shop while he was in college and then built it after college to a business that he could sell for $11 million uh, cash in hand. Um, and he was doing government contracts and all sorts of uh, wild things. And he was he acted as a bit of a mentor for me. In fact, um, in my quest to put more bullet points on my resume, um, I became a, a mechanics apprentice for him out at the Ashland Municipal Airport. And he inspired me to go back to school and get my head in the game of mechanical engineering. And, and the way that I, you know, you would never want to say that you fell into your field. Yeah, but they, don't we all just fall into our fields? <laughs> and I was given the opportunity to do this research project with uh, Dr. Kruzik. And I got to say, if I didn't have that opportunity, I might not, you know, I wouldn't be where I'm at today uh, advocating for nuclear power. Um, so, you know, certain things come along and and what is luck? It's when uh, opportunity meets preparation, right? Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've heard that before. I really like that. <laughs> Oh, come on. That's like a catchphrase now. Isn't that cliche for me to say that? Well, yeah, it's Dylan's catchphrase now. <laughs> now it is. Well, I want to know, so you were working in a kitchen, though, but you had much, uh, many other career things going on before even you became inspired by this uh, mechanic. Yeah. Um, and to backtrack a little there, I, at a, out of high school in 2006, I went to Willamette University for a couple of years, and at Willamette, I... Um, studied, uh, you know, I got a B minus in multivariable calculus. I was valedictorian in my high school. And then my first term, I, I was going to do a 3-2 engineering program at Willamette University. And I got a B minus in multivariable calculus. And I was like, it's not for me. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get that A. This is what grades do to people's psych- psyche. You know, it's, it's not good. It's not pretty. Um, it could have been somebody, but I got a B minus, you know. And, uh, and so I, I like stopped that whole track for like for so many years um, because I got a bad grade in a class or something and, um, and went on to study rhetoric and communications at Willamette University for two years. Didn't see that ending up in a profitable career or any career really. It's, I asked asked my cohorts, like, what are you going to do after college? And they didn't really have any answers. Um, and so I decided to um, to keep going with a, a business that I had started in my dorm room um, while I was at Willamette. Seeing, you know, I saw the collapse of my my efforts towards that degree coming, and I was trying to prep um, by trying to start something out of my dorm room. And I ended up selling stuff over the phone um, for, for a couple of years, and then I ended up working in a kitchen, and then I ended up uh, working – uh, again on the phone and then behind the scenes um, for the people that I was selling stuff over the phone for I became their like webmaster I guess you would call it I mean was, I've always been good with numbers and spreadsheets so they said come and manage our numbers and spreadsheets and help us build web pages and run our internet marketing business and that's what I did for my uh, the majority of my undergraduate career to earn money on the side and help help not accrue 
too much debt. So then you're a web developer. <laughs> Another bullet point for the CD. You could call me a web developer. <laughs> I, what I, I called myself director. They called me director of operations. And um, th- this was no small venture, folks. We did. We grossed uh, over a million dollars a couple years in a row. And uh, we were selling info products online. And it was, um, it was a lot of fun. It, what I realized uh, after I got my degree and I got an offer as a, uh, an HVAC person to do heating, ventilation, and air conditioning in Portland um, – uh, and I, I took that offer to my internet marketing employer, and they said, uh, "Yeah, well, this is uh, this is a good offer. I guess we'll pay you what they're actually willing to pay you. They, they hadn't paid me enough money at that point, so I was trying to trying to uh, <laughs> leverage something there. And I did. And yet, after a year again working for them out of uh, undergrad, I realized I was never going to be fulfilled if I just kept messing around virtually on online. And I had to go back and fulfill something technical." By becoming a master's student, and now here I am. So you got over that B minus. <laughs> I'm, ne- I'm never actually going to get over it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm wondering if uh, now, in retrospect, what about having that kind of meandering career path and and your foot in the business world has um, helped you with what you're doing now, if anything? I think. Uh, my studying rhetoric and communications and then having a foot in the business world gave me uh, the, some gift of gab, which you have to <laughs> – it's, it's interesting, you know, going to school with a bunch of engineers and now working with a bunch of engineers, nothing is more important than communication. Nothing. This doesn't, nothing happens anywhere without people enrolling other people in a vision to do something. Even if it's just a simple engineering task, you got to think – you have to be – enrolled in the idea of completing this report and communication has to happen to that effect between a manager and a and a employee or whatever so having my feet in both worlds has helped in the sense that i think i'm a good communicator i presume i'm a good communicator i think so too my assessment as of now is yes (laughs) so so with that said you know we're coming to the end of our show unfortunately and you know you as a great communicator i really could talk to you for a much longer period of time i wish we had more time but uh, we do have two traditions on the show, and mm-hmm. one is to ask our guests of any uh, any advice you have. It could be for yourself in the past, for for other uh, mechanical engineers that are currently going through school and trying to get through, you know, their their third year of uh, you know crazy calculus that no longer even uses numbers and just letters yeah. now. Uh, so, who is your advice for, and what is that advice? Okay, I'll target uh, people that are just entering. Uh, any of Oregon State's engineering programs and say that you are in school, just entering OSU in general, you're in school to learn how to learn. And that's why you're here at Oregon State. There's a, find out how you learn best and and capitalize on that because it doesn't, it, none of the grades or anything is going to matter. And um, at, at the end of the day, when you go out and get your job, it's it's all about selling the fact that you know how to learn because it's it's funny for me to say it's kind of hypocritical because I'm in a position where I did learn things that were I could leverage in my interview and I could say I'm an expert in X, Y, and Z and and other people will do that as well and yet I did, in the interview for NewScale for instance when they asked you know could you do this I said well I don't know that piece of software but I can learn it. And you, as long as you're confident in your ability to learn and you know how you learn best, you're going to succeed. So that's my advice. Um, put your focus in the right place while you're at school. That's that's what you're here to do. 
That's very good advice. I definitely, having been a TA for some of the courses at Oregon State as well, it's we have many resources to help you learn how you learn as well here at Oregon State. So capitalize on those. But mm. yeah. Our last tradition also is for you to give us a, a song that we can play as your outro. And uh, what song did you choose and why? I chose Bob Marley's Redemption Song because it's been kind of a mantra for me as I... Uh, as I exited uh, my master's career, uh, my career as a graduate student, and entered the workforce, um, uh, I, got, I got to say one thing about this, that I did a meditation retreat this uh, summer. It was one of the most powerful things I've ever done in my life. Go do a Vipassana meditation retreat. If you ever get the chance, take 10 days off and go out and be, be there in, in silence. And what I came away from it from, having you know, come away from that, and I'm about to start my new job with New Scale, is Bob Marley's Redemption Song. And one of the lyrics, which I hope that everybody listening will key into, is emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves will free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy. None of them are going to stop the times. <laughs> Nobody's going to stop the times. And we have ran out of time. So thank you for the time. <laughs> yeah, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. And again, this is uh, Bob Marley with Redemption Song. Thank you for coming on air. Cheers.